This episode is sponsored by PwC. Take a proactive approach to telling your story using trusted metrics and disclosures. Visit www.pwc.com slash US slash ESG reporting. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, can Bumblebee and Nestle hook the world on fishless fish? Why your next BMW will run like butter? A conversation with the scrappy founders of FabScrap. And can the circular economy help ease inflation? It's all priceless this week on 350. It's June 11th, 2021. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, the summery Midland Park, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello from summery Midland Park, Joe. I hope you're well. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point to one of the puns in your title and say I'm going to have to know later why you think BMWs are like better. I'm, I'm looking forward to that, to that, to that explanation. But uh, It has to do with cows and methane. Ah, okay. Now I'm getting it. Sometimes a little slow on the uptake, but... Okay, that's good okay. one. Good one. Uh, uh, you know, if we're here to make you think, Heather. <laughs> so that's what it's all about. Uh, really? But while you're thinking, uh, I hope you're thinking about next week because uh, we have a big show coming up. Circularity 21 mm-hmm. happens uh, mm-hmm. Tuesday through Thursday next week. Uh, that's the what is it? The 15th to the 17th. Um, and wow, I'm really looking forward to it as I do every year, of course. But uh, it just keeps getting better and better. I know you've got uh, some great conversations happening. What, what are you up to next week? Well, I have a lot of geeky conversations. My, my friends in the Circularity Program Development Office have given me a lot of technology-focused uh, sessions on reverse logistics, on connected goods, and so forth. So I have a couple of great breakouts coming up, as well as a keynote interview with Catherine Coleman-Flowers, who is an advocate for wastewater uh, infrastructure reform. Um, she hails from Alabama, and she's got a really um, great perspective on this issue, as well as the connection and intersection with environmental justice. What about you? Um, I've got a couple of great conversations myself, uh, one of which uh, I'll be on the opening day with uh, our friend Lisa Jackson, the head mm. of sustainability, social impact, uh, and governance um, or policy, I guess, at Apple. Mm-hmm. Of course, Apple has this make but don't take initiative mm-hmm. that uh, how do you you know create all those great Apple products without mining anything? And they're, uh, we're going to talk about the progress on that and a number of other mm-hmm. things. And then I have a conversation. It's actually just an ask the expert uh, where people can come and, and, and ask this particular expert. His name is William McDonough, uh, Bill McDonough, mm-hmm. good, another good friend of ours and uh, mm-hmm. always fascinating and inspiring um, talking about the really interesting things he's doing in, in the world of packaging. Uh, as it relates to circularity, but it's it's not really about him talking as much as it about his others asking. So I look forward to seeing what the 
circularity community uh, wants to know from Bill McDonough and then a couple other things. So, yeah, mm-hmm. it's going to be a great week. Um, if you yep. uh, want to check it out, just go to greenbiz.com. You'll, <laughs> I'm sure, see uh, high on the homepage a, uh, a banner ad or some other things that will allow you to check into that. But before we get into next week, let's talk about the past week in the Week in Review. I'll get us started with a story that really piqued my attention because I am a pescatarian. I do eat a little bit of meat, but I'm primarily a pescatarian. And our wonderful uh, senior editor, Elsa Wenzel, has done a piece on fishless fish and the companies involved with that part of the alternative protein movement. And um, I basically had no uh, really no concept of of the companies that were working on this. But as it turns out, we do have a number of very large ones, Bumblebee, uh, Nestle, Tyson, General Mills, and Thai Union. They're all making various plays in in basically using their their money and research and development to use materials like kelp, koji, mung beans, and turn them into uh, fish alternatives, everything from shrimp alternatives to salmon alternatives. and so this is a great piece on the research being done here, on the on the movement being done here. Now, I want to you know be clear that this is not a huge part of the alternative meat movement. Um, I think it's right now it's only one percent of all alt meat sales uh, for plant based seafood, compared to sixty percent for the beef, poultry, and pork alternatives. But I, as we think about the sustainability of our fisheries, I, I believe personally that. This is going to become a big, big issue. Maybe not so much in the United States, but in other parts of the world that really rely on, on the sea for their protein. What What did uh, you take away from this story, Joel? Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is going to come on really, really fast. Um, uh, we're facing uh, food uh, fishery shortages and ecosystem collapse in some places. Prices mm-hmm. are going up. We need other sources of protein. Um, this is really interesting stuff. I have to say, that you you probably don't want to read the ingredients of some of these things uh, as cool as they sound. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, you yeah. know, I, I love this one, this startup uh, actually out here in Berkeley, California called Prime Roots. And mm-hmm. among the things they've made, uh, they made a bacon early on, but now they're making a lobster, in quotes, ravioli. And uh, it, it's uh, made from a super protein called koji, uh, with the key ingredient is the fungus aspergillus, <laughs> or I can't even pronounce it, O-R-Y-Z-A-E. Way too many vowels Orze? I don't know. Um, Not Orza, but, Orzo, yeah, but Orze. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. But, you know, the, the so you don't want to necessarily, you know, read those too much because it starts to take a little bit of the buzz out of this. But it is, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a broth that's in a process similar to brewing beer. So therefore, maybe it redeems itself. And, and But the point is, <laughs> is that uh, so many of these foods uh, using synthetic biology and, uh, and a whole range of other technologies are coming on really quickly. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's as always, it's the question is, will consumers mm-hmm. take the bait? And, um, <laughs> you know, I think we'll see a lot of these things will be in the more processed kinds of things. Um, so the Ohio-based company called Gathered Foods has a, a frozen fish sticks 
uh, that's mm-hmm. going to be available in Safeway and other supermarkets. And, you know, that kind of thing where it's a little bit more processed. You're not going to replace a salmon filet, I don't think, with any. Or a tuna steak. Yeah, tuna, tuna, steak. tuna fish yeah, yeah. in a can, maybe, but not the steaks. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But still, mm-hmm. we need new sources of protein that don't come from cows, mm-hmm. chickens, pigs, and, and, and fish and, and seafood. So this is, a, I think, a great thing to do. The question is, uh, will people want it? And that's mm-hmm. always the question. But I predict that it will be, as all these things are, a slow ramp, and all of a sudden um, they will catch a wave. So speaking of speed and movement, <laughs> let's turn to another story. Um, I heard what our, you did there. <laughs> our uh, senior writer and analyst of transportation and mobility, Katie Fehrenbacher, who I will I'll just before I go any further, say that uh, is off after this week. Today is her last day for a few months as she goes on to be uh, to discover her inner child in the form of her second uh, baby coming. And so we wish her well as she uh, takes uh, summer to uh, become uh, a mom for the second time. Mm-hmm. So, Katie, uh, we all love you and are looking forward to uh, seeing you back. And But more important to seeing you have a healthy, happy uh, yeah. second child. But she left us with uh, this story on low-speed electric vehicles uh, that, as she says, are having a moment. Uh, mm-hmm. Not necessarily in uh, these United States, uh, but in yeah. China and other countries where these slower speed, smaller, lighter weight vehicles, $5,000 in some cases, at least uh, uh, this particular uh, car that's made by uh, a partnership with General Motors and Guangxi Automotive in China. Uh, and I, the question is, you know, will American consumers, sounds like the fish story we just did, <laughs> will, will American consumers show interest in these kinds of things? Mm-hmm. Um, again, I think the answer is yes. Over time, you know, we're seeing this rise of scooters and e-bikes, and mm-hmm. you know, we, in some places we do see little tiny, funny little cars, you know, three wheelers, four wheelers, you know, scooting around uh, based on uh, electric power. Uh, you know, hardly mass market yet, but I, I think this really uh, will, uh, you know, get some movement. Yeah, I mean, I think. It- this is a protect her. By the way, Katie, yes, we'll miss you, and we're so excited for you. Um, but back to our regularly scheduled program. I, <laughs> I, I think of this as a town car. You know, as I was reading the story and thinking about my recent um, driving experiences, um, we have several vehicles. I will admit, in my household, and I have always had a problem with taking my car on short trips. And this, this for me, like seems like a good solution for that for the household in America that might have a couple of cars. I wouldn't want to take this on the trip I just went on, which was like New Jersey to Virginia Beach and back because there's there would have been no way for me, number one, to drive fast enough because it's too, too tiny and small. And I probably wouldn't have felt all that safe, which is actually probably one of the big deals um, for US adoption. But also the, the charging infrastructure wasn't there. I mean, like I was on rural roads and there just wasn't the infrastructure. So I can, I kind of, the way I'm thinking about this is I think urban, I think the urban focus might be um, one, as she suggests in her essay, but also organizations or households that have, you know, a couple of cars and that might need things for short hops. I don't know. That's that's just me as a as an American driver. 
Well, uh, even even us American drivers need to right size what we do uh, yeah. because, you know, we, we, we get in a 6,000-pound uh, vehicle, one person to drive a mile or two miles or half a yeah. mile to the store to pick up a thing or a few yeah. things. And, exactly. um, you know, something like only 10% of the energy that's being expended is actually moving the person. Uh, a lot of it's just... Uh, goes off in heat and traction and other things, mm -hmm. uh, exhaust that, that is lost. And so, you know, do we need those big cars, particularly, you know, the number one uh, selling cars or light trucks and SUVs? Yeah. Do we need those to do things? And and if we can get Americans, and this is a heavy lift for a light car, but if we can get uh, Americans to think differently that they don't need to be in this six passenger vehicle or five passenger vehicle, to do some of these simple errands around town, as you're saying, exactly. and maybe even to go, you know, on a short hop uh, for the day somewhere. Uh, but, you know, one of the questions, of course, is um, will it become the third vehicle that people have, as you, as you were sort of suggesting, Heather, that you've got, uh, I know you have, you know, your husband rides motorcycles He's, and you've yeah. got, uh, you know, probably different mm -hmm. number of different kinds of vehicles. He's also a, a, a construction person and so has, yep. a, I'm sure, a pickup exactly. or a van or something. Yep. And so, and then you've got your passenger, you know, but the question is, will this be... Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, an, an additional car or mm -hmm. replacement car, or mm -hmm. for some people, the only car. Because, you know, mm -hmm. uh, right now, uh, Lyft and Uber, you know, prices are going up. They're having trouble finding drivers. It's not going to be as it was once upon a time where they mm -hmm. were cheap and ubiquitous. Uh, it may not be, at least for a while. And so people may go back to needing that uh, personal mm -hmm. vehicle again, And but they mm -hmm. don't want to have the big car. That's why they went for Uber and Lyft in the first place, So, or, or, or some, of the, some of the car sharing services. So this could be a happy middle ground. Um, you know, it's moot right now because we're not seeing that many made and sold in the United States. Uh, we have Daimler's, uh, their Smart 4.2. It comes both electric and gas-powered versions, but that came and went, and it, it, it didn't do very well. And so there really aren't that many vehicles yet. But meanwhile, in the rest of the world, this is a growing phenomenon. So I'm really encouraged to see that. Yep. yep. But let's turn to the third story, which uh, I think was really sort of one of those what kinds of stories that, um, <laughs> uh, you know, showed up first in the uh, Circular Weekly Newsletter, comes out every Wednesday and covering ESG and sustainable finance issues. And uh, we have a rotating cast of, of writers and editors for that. And this week, uh, our good friend Emily Chasen, uh, ex-Wall uh, Street Journal, ex-Bloomberg, now working for Generate Capital, uh, which is doing some really amazing investing in energy infrastructure. She wrote a piece called How Circular Thinking Could Ease Inflation. And it's like, <laughs> wait, what? And, and you know, great it makes a, yeah, it's a great headline. It makes a really uh, interesting case. But, you know, it's one of those things that once you hear it, it's like, well, yeah, that makes total sense. If you're using materials more efficiently, if you're getting mm -hmm. to reuse and putting back into circulation and and having to mine a lot less, it does put, uh, can put downward pressure on prices as things become uh, more available. The supply grows and the demand stays, uh, let's say, you know, assume it's uh, grows as much or less, uh, the demand holds steady. So um, this is one of those benefits of the circular economy that we don't, I hadn't really thought about. And I love that she brought this up. Yeah, this this is for me like one of those big business model shifts that we've seen out of the pandemic, 
right? Because so now there are no companies that aren't talking about hybrid work or remote work or, you know, it just completely changed how companies think about the workplace. In this particular scenario, the one that fascinates me the most is the construction scenario, the steel, the lumber, the materials like and, and I, you, you mentioned my husband earlier it he construction materials are so out of control expensive now to buy sheetrock is just ridiculous I mean he's had to push up the prices of many of his jobs and but this has got finally some of the steel like the steel industry for example thinking about circular processes in ways they'd never have before because the buyers are finally willing to like think about hey what about that material that we got back from that job? And can we put this in back into circulation? And so it just it just kind of like reset a lot of brains, I think, about the the possibilities of what's really happening here and how we we do need to think about um, materials in a different way. I and I I think it's also going to be pretty um, profoundly impactful on the 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 battery recycling that needs to happen, right? We've been talking about this for the past couple of years and to the point you made earlier is these things are happening and they're happening and all of a sudden they're there, <laughs> you know, like it feels so slow and then boom. Um, but battery recycling and taking some of these precious or rare earth, um, not even just the rare earths, but some materials out, um, mining them, if you will, from the existing things we have and putting them back into circulation just makes so much more sense now with, with the prices out of control. So it just, yeah, it's, this is one of those Oh my God, yes. <laughs> so logical. Right. And that brings us back to Apple. And that's exactly what they're doing and trying to do, at least, and mm -hmm. figuring out how to take back their pro their products and do it in the Apple way, which is mean, you know, total control over things so that they, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, keep all the parts and all the materials. But, you know, how do you mine the, you know, the copper and the cobalt and, and all the other uh, right. things that are in an iPhone or a, or a uh, MacBook mm -hmm. or any other product? Mm -hmm. um, and and that's I think the really interesting opportunity. And how does that uh, you know affect the ability to keep prices down? So, as we said, lots more on this next week at Circularity Twenty One. And uh, there I went and plugged it again. I'm Deanna Anderson, Senior Editor at GreenBiz, and today I'm joined by Jessica Schreiber and Camille Tegel, co-founders of FabScrap. It's a nonprofit organization that was created to address commercial textile recycling needs. Hi, Jessica and Camille. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having us. We're so excited to be here. Thank you. I'm really excited to dive in with you all. Um, and basically to start, I just wanted to kind of dive into the scale of textile waste. Fabstrap is based in New York, um, so I thought this was an interesting stat to bring up. A 2017 report from the Ellen MacArthur Foundation found that New York City spends more than $20 million a year landfilling and incinerating textiles, um, and a lot of that is clothing. This is an issue that you all are addressing. Can you just share a little bit more about how Fab Scrap is addressing the textile waste issue? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, that's a really impactful stat to know that so much is going to landfill or being incinerated. When I was working at the New York City Department of Sanitation, we were specifically working with uh, used clothing and home goods. And there we had about 200,000 tons wasted every year from New York City's five boroughs 
200,000 tons is sometimes hard to visualize. It's 14 times the weight of the Brooklyn Bridge or the Brooklyn Bridge holds up about 90,000 tons. So you would need two plus Brooklyn Bridges just to hold up the amount of clothing and home goods that New York City residents throw out every year. So definitely a big problem. And what I realized while working there was that that was only residential, that was not commercial. And so those numbers didn't include what businesses were throwing away as part of their design and production of their product. And so that's what FabScrap is attempting to address the same way that there's a thrift infrastructure for used goods. We wanted to create a thrift infrastructure for the unused excess products that happens as part of the design process. And we haven't found really great measures of commercial textile waste. The best estimate is that for every pound we throw away as a consumer, the business created 40 waste upstream. So potentially... There's a lot that businesses are throwing out that isn't properly measured or handled. And so that's where we want to help and start to um, lend some transparency. And definitely, I, my background came from design. And so that part of the industry and having been you know, the brands that we partner with that had been designing and throwing out a lot of textile waste through that process, that was definitely something that we realized could, you know, so many of those fabrics can be reused. And so also just making those beautiful, barely used fabrics available and into the hands of people who could still work with them and extending that life is also su super important and a big part of what we do at Yeah. So you all have been around since 2015, I believe. And I'm curious about if you can share a little bit about the impact you've had so far and also what you kind of hope to have moving forward from here? Yeah, we launched September of 2016. So we turned five this year in September and we just passed 750,000 pounds collected and saved from landfill. And we're now working with over 500 companies. And it's been really great to see brands sign on for the service and care more about diverting their waste and tracking their waste. Um, and we're also seeing that grow, not just for the fashion companies in New York City, but interior design and entertainment, um, costume and set departments also create textile waste. And so we're also going to sort of expand into new uh, industries. And I think the real impact that we're having is just the attention and education that this waste stream exists. It's actually a resource that could be redistributed or saved. So every time that a new brand signs up or someone shops with us, I think that's the real impact that we're having is that acknowledgement of waste as a resource. And definitely building a community around sustainability as well has been really, really fulfilling and amazing to see. Uh, both on the side of companies who have decided to be you know, more proactive about their sustainable efforts, but also just individuals and designers and entrepreneurs and students, uh, just being able, as Jessica had mentioned, uh, to focus on the education, knowing that the next generation of designers are also entering and going to impact um, our waste stream. That's super important for us as well. We've built a pretty wide volunteer community with um, the sorting that's required for the textile waste that we receive. So we have about, I think, over 6,000 have um, come and volunteered with us, which is amazing. And we're so grateful for their help. Um, and I believe one in five 
ends up returning to volunteer again. So, you know, people are truly understanding the impact that we that we have and are wanting to help, which is super important. We also give volunteers free fabric. So I think that helps a little <laughs> bit, <laughs> both with the redistribution and that it gets people involved in the solution. Mm -hmm, definitely. I mean, if I was a designer, I would probably want to volunteer too uh, for that perk. <laughs> So you all mentioned kind of building a community uh, with the different organizations that you work with. Um, you all recently launched a partnership with Urban, which has brands like Urban Outfitters and Anthropology under its umbrella, and also a partnership with Nordstrom. I'm curious if you can share a little bit about how those partnerships will help Fabscrap grow. We were really excited when Nordstrom and Urban reached out. It was mostly in relation to helping Fabscrap grow geographically. Um, we'd been working with Urban for about a year, but they're based in Philadelphia and they were shipping material to us in New York City. But there are a lot of fashion companies, interior design companies with headquarters in Philadelphia, Baltimore, DC, South New Jersey. And so their us is to kind of expand geographically to be able to provide service to not just them more locally, but all of the companies in the area, all of the designers in the area. Um, and when Nordstrom found out that we were growing in that way, also got involved. And I think that is not only just an incredible validation that like service is needed and the industry recognizes that like innovations like this are part of the path forward. Um, so incredibly validating that way, but also shows some real leadership of the brands who are trying to make changes that not only benefit them, but benefit everybody um, in those areas. Yeah, Urban and Nordstrom definitely serve as really great examples of how companies take it further and do more with a partnership with us than just service alone. And those are like, I know that, I think I read that Nordstrom is contributing like a million a year. Is that right? <laughs> That is their overall goal for circularity mm -hmm. and fashion. We have a, a small part of that. It didn't all go to us. I think they're <laughs> definitely contributing to a lot of different projects in the space. Um, but yeah, I think it's exciting to see a real change in the focus on sustainability, just from even when we launched five years ago to now and how involved and focused brands are in, in moving forward in a more sustainable way. Um, so clearly it is very important for large corporations to partner with organizations like yours who are doing work on the ground. Um, can you tell me a little bit more about how other companies who might be interested in partnering, partnering with you all can get involved? Yeah, we um, are definitely looking to open in other cities. Uh, prior to COVID, we were actually spending a lot of time in LA and wanting to look at a West Coast location. So we could definitely work with brand partners in that area to get that off the ground and make that happen more quickly. We are also really excited about not just doing recycling and reuse, but actually helping brands reduce the three R's moving backwards in the chain towards reduction. And that's going to require some real partnerships with brands to work with their mills. What we found is that 75% of what we pick up are swatches that mills send to brands to select fabrics for the season. But really small pieces, they don't often get reused. And so working between brands and mills to kind of form partnerships there to waste less and send more usable pieces is sort of the next step. 
Yeah, that sounds like that could have a a huge impact (laughs) moving forward. We're hoping so. (laughs) Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jessica and Camille, for coming on Green Biz 350. I'll be on the lookout for more of the work that FabScrap is doing. Thank you so much. Thanks again for having us. I'm Jesse Klein, Associate Editor for Green Biz. Electric vehicles are here, but in order for them to have meaningful drawdown effects, the electricity needs to come from renewable sources. The Strauss Family Creamery and BMW created a partnership that has the potential to have double drawdown effects. Biodigesters on dairy farms will capture the potent greenhouse gas methane from cow manure, preventing it from escaping into the atmosphere and then use that gas to create renewable electricity. The credits from this process will be retired in the name of BMW's EV charging ports, reducing emissions on that side of the equation as well. I'm here with Joseph Button, the Sustainability Director at Strauss Family Creamery, and Adam Langdon, Energy Services Manager at BMW, to talk about how their cross-sector partnership is bringing renewable energy to electric vehicles. Thanks for joining me, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you for inviting us here. Yeah. So how did this partnership come to be and and how does it work? Uh, Well, maybe I can start. Um, In 2019, we at BMW were exploring how we could partner with renewable energy generators to bring more renewable energy generation to the grid in California. Uh, We were already doing uh, work on smart charging with our electric vehicle drivers. And in our smart charging program, we were focused on how do we get the vehicle to charge at times when there's more renewable energy on the grid. And we started looking at, well, how do we bring more renewable energy to the grid? And we were looking, we're looking at different technologies that we could partner with. We were really looking for technologies that had a strong potential for carbon emission reduction and also an opportunity to scale where we could have an impact on the scaling. And... Uh, biodigesters at dairy farms really stood out to us as a great opportunity in both of those aspects. And so we started looking at dairy farms in California, and the Strauss Organic Dairy Farm um, looked like a great opportunity to partner because they had such a strong commitment to sustainability um, going back decades. And so at that point, we reached out to Joseph. Yeah, and it's really interesting from the point of view of Strauss Family Creamery. For years, we have been researching how to create an innovative, small-scale methane biodigester solution for organic dairy farms. And this had been a real challenge. It was a technology that didn't exist at the scale for small organic dairies. It was cost prohibitive, but at the same time, we saw a great opportunity to both tackle climate change by minimizing methane emissions in dairy manure lagoons and also support revenue and income for dairy farmers, which is an industry that has been struggling to survive over the last few decades. And so we were very much researching a new technology that we could deliver for small organic dairy farmers. And there's a lot of components that went into that. We needed the right technology. We needed the right funding to help pay for it. But most importantly, we needed the right business case. 
And that's exactly when Adam called to get in touch with me about this opportunity to help charge EVs in California with dairy biodigesters. Yeah, so how does that actually work? How are you getting the methane from the biodigester to the charging port, or is it just like, you know, an offset? Well, so the the two companies uh, partner together to generate credits through the California Low Carbon Fuel Standard Program. And in this program, automakers can partner with renewable energy generators and then demonstrate that they're, they are uh, charging uh, their vehicles with renewable energy, according to the rules of the Air Resources Board. Um, and if you're able to do that, you're able to generate credits. And those credits can be monetized, and both of our entities use the revenue from that to support sustainability activities that we do. Got it. So, Joseph, where is the, the methane that you're producing? Where is it actually going? Yeah, so the, at the Strauss Organic Dairy Farm, they've had a methane biodigester for 15 years. And the way this technology works is it's very simple. You put a cover over a manure lagoon, and you capture the methane gas that is released from cow's manure. That manure is then, or that biogas, excuse me, is then combusted in a engine which produces electricity. And that electricity is considered renewable at the Strauss Organic Dairy Farm. Around 350 megawatts of renewable energy credits are created each year from this system. And those credits are now being retired for the purpose of creating low carbon fuel standard credits which are then shared with BMW to, in a sense, virtually power BMW electric vehicles. And so are you pumping that renewable electricity into the grid? Are you using it on the farms? Yeah, that's a great question. So the primary uh, purpose of the electricity is to offset electric use on the farm, but there is additional electricity that is sent to the grid um, above and beyond the farm usage. Maybe I can jump in there. Um, regarding the use of the electricity, according to the Air Resources Board, the rule for matching, renewable matching, is that the energy must be produced in the same quarter that the um, transportation fuel is used. So right now they do the accounting on a quarterly basis for each year. Um, we recognize that in the long term, for California to reach its goal of getting 100% renewable energy, we're going to have to have a much closer pairing between renewable energy and the consumption um, and then charging, excuse me, of electric vehicles. So our goal in the long run is that we want our, our vehicles to be charging exactly when our renewable partners are generating their electricity. And that's what's going to be the most beneficial for the grid. We've taken kind of the first step here in that process. Um, by partnering together to generate these credits. BMW is also running a smart charging program, which is shifting our electric vehicle charging toward the times when there's more renewables on the grid. And in the future, we'll continue to make that more sophisticated so our charging and our renewable energy partner generation is happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, obviously with credits and offsets, there's a lot of talk about additionality and making sure that what you're doing is actually additional to what you could be doing on your own. So, you know, what does this partnership allow you to do? Like, why couldn't you just 
you know, collect the methane gas and use the electricity on your farm and, and not sell the credits? Yeah, so that, that gets to the real heart of the opportunity that we've been looking at for years. Additionality is front and center for where we want to take this partnership. Um, yes, the credits could just be used on the farm, but uh, without this part of or without this type of program that the California Air Resources Board is sponsoring and behind, there wouldn't be the income to help dairy farmers pay off the adoption of this technology. So this new revenue source that's being developed is driving and creating a really essential business case to help this technology get adopted. So in the region where I live, Marin and Sonoma County of California, there are only two small-scale biodigesters in existence. It's been the same two for the last 20 years. None of the other 90 organic dairy farmers or so have adopted this technology because there's been real barriers, but the key barriers have been on the income and the revenue side from adopting this tech. The business case didn't just pay off. You could get around eight cents for a power purchase agreement if you sold your excess electricity, but under the low carbon fuel standard program, you can get 20 to 40 cents per kilowatt hour produced total. So that's a real game changer. And what we're driving now is getting this technology adopted at as many local organic dairy farms as we possibly can to see additionality happen as a result of this partnership and this program that we've been able to take advantage of. And I, I guess I'd add one thing to that as well. Um, when we started this, there were no small biodigesters that were approved to participate in this program. And so one of the things we had to do is demonstrate to the Air Resources Board and to other dairy farms, we wanted to show them as well, that a biodigester at a small organic dairy farm could participate in this program. So we were the first ones to get a digester in this context into the into that program. And that was an important first step in, in demonstrating the viability of this. And so at BMW, Adam, why did you guys decide to create this like really, you know, entangled partnership instead of just, you know, buying credits on the market? Well, I think we wanted to, uh, we, we had two goals here. We wanted to create the, the largest potential carbon emission reductions that we could. That was one aspect. But we were also looking for opportunities where we could impact uh, the scaling of a promising renewable energy opportunity. So what we, we could go out into the market and buy solar or wind offsets, which is, which is valuable, but it, we wouldn't have an impact on the scaling of those technologies at this point. And um, we, we'd also be able to create carbon emissions there. But working with dairy farms, there's a much larger carbon emission reduction opportunity um, is, is one aspect to it. And because this was a, a technology that had some barriers to scaling, um, by demonstrating this business case, we thought we could have an impact on um, growing this technology and helping it scale. Yeah, and talking about that scaling, Joseph, you mentioned that there's only two biodigesters in your area. What's the goal? How do you hope to get more biodigesters out there? And, and how much energy do you hope to create over you know, a certain time period? Yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the $100 million question. The goal is that every organic dairy farmer in California will feel like they have a real opportunity to adopt this technology, reduce their methane emissions from manure lagoons, 
which is a significant source of CO2e emissions in the state and globally, and then also use that uh, revenue as an additional income source, which for many organic dairy farmers is very sorely needed uh, at this point in the dairy economy. So our vision is big. Our goal is replicability. So like Adam said, we want this to take off and we really needed this partnership to be used as a proof of concept. Tomorrow, I'm going to meet with the 12 organic dairy farms that supply Strauss Family Creamery with milk at our quarterly meeting. And I've been giving them a quarterly update for the last three years on this very project and this partnership. And they're kind of waiting with bated breath. They want the technology to be ready. And they also want to take advantage of the same type of partnership so that they can reduce their environmental impact and diversify their income streams. And so where are you in that process right now? Are there farms out there that are supplying credits to BMW right now? And where do you hope to be in two or three years, I guess? Yeah, so, so right now the Stress Organic Dairy Farm, as of January 1st of this year, has been supplying credits in partnership with BMW. We hope uh, over the next three or four years to bring on another five to ten, hopefully even more, biodigester units in our region and really expand this partnership as much as we possibly can. And how many are there supplying right now? How many biodigesters on farms are there right now? That's a good question. So there's quite a few biodigesters in the state of California due to uh, a grant program that the state has sponsored over the last few years. Most of those biodigesters are located in the Central Valley of California and are largely based in the conventional dairy industry. Um, the economics for putting in a large-scale biodigester on a large uh, conventional dairy farm make a lot more sense. It's never made sense for your small pasture-based organic dairy farms with much smaller herd numbers. And so you see this real bifurcation in the industry where bigger farms have been able to take advantage of this, but the smaller dairy farms have not been able to. And they also want to mitigate their environmental impact and take advantage of this tech. Um, again, so there's two small biodigesters that we're aware of. And over the next five to 10 years, we'd love to see five to 10 to, you know, even 100 adopted uh, by organic dairy farmers in the state. And those two that you mentioned are the two that are now supplying credits to BMW? Uh, only the Strauss Organic Dairy Farm is currently uh, supplying uh, credits from our region. And on the on the BMW side, we're working with an additional dairy farm, um, a, a much larger uh, facility as well. The two facilities that we're working with collectively offset all of the carbon emissions for BMW electric vehicle charging in the state of California. So uh, we were interested in, in looking at the small dairies and the large dairies and seeing where we could get the most emission reduction. But as Joseph mentioned, the small organic dairies have some particular challenges to accessing capital and justifying the business case. And so that's why we we're particularly interested in targeting the working with those smaller farms, because that's where we thought we could have a real impact on, on how they scale. Mm -hmm. And what were some of the challenges or obstacles that you had to overcome in creating this partnership or scaling it over the next four years that you foresee? So I think one of the key challenges I mentioned previously is 
there had not been a small dairy that was approved to participate in the low carbon fuel standard program. And so that was one of the first hurdles we had to address. Um, in order to participate in the program, the Air Resources Board does a pretty thorough um, analysis of the carbon intensity of your facility and uh, has a third party evaluate it, has public comments. Um, that process was largely geared toward larger facilities. The data requirements and the processes that they were looking for were things that large dairies had already implemented in their biodigesters, but had not always been done in small-scale digesters due to the complexity and the cost. So we had to work with the Air Resources Board to figure out a way to get um, a small dairy approved for this. And so that was the first hurdle that we, we overcame. Uh, we worked closely with the staff and we were successful in, in getting this one approved. Joseph, anything difficult on your side? Bandwidth and resources, you know, it's it's the constant problem that we're all facing. So the 12 organic dairy farms that we supply milk from in Marin and Sonoma counties, they're all independent farms that we contract with. And so one of the services that we provide to them as part of our mission-based business practice of sustaining these family farms is to loan and give my resources at no cost to help them drive this opportunity. So that takes resources, it takes time. And as Adam said, we went through the hard process already of getting one small organic dairy farm registered with the low carbon fuel standard. Now we know how to do it. We have great partners and regulators at the Air Resources Board that have helped us through the process. We understand it. We expect it to be more efficient in the process. So those are the two biggest challenges. Um, but really, uh, going back to the key point, the refinement of the business case is key. And so part of the business case is making sure that we can get through this process and get the farm in a position where it can then receive these revenues through the low carbon fuel standard program that makes them feel comfortable to adopt a technology at a price that otherwise might seem like a big risk uh, for a relatively small business operation like an organic dairy farm. Obviously, I think there's going to be a lot more cross-sector partnerships like this uh, coming up in business and corporations if we're really going to make an impact on the planet. And I'm curious what advice you have to either other car companies or other farming companies or even just other companies in general who are going to try to do a cross-sector partnership like this. Well, I think uh, one recommendation is for other companies and other folks that are looking at ways to... Um, improve their sustainability outcomes is to look for these kind of cross-industry partnerships um, for opportunities to find innovative ways to create these emission reductions and to really approach uh, sustainability outcomes with a, uh, an innovative mindset um, because I think you can find a lot of exciting opportunities there. It's really the classic one plus one equals three. You know, before Adam called and left a voicemail on my, on my phone, I never would have anticipated that we were going to be partnering with BMW two or three years ago. But with this partnership and with our aligned goals of really minimizing the effects of climate emissions on our environment, we were able to come up with what I have considered a really fruitful partnership uh, but it all starts with alignment. 
do you have shared goals and ambitions between companies? Now, I think more and more we're going to see businesses across industries say, look, climate change is the penultimate environmental crisis of our day. We need to reach outside of our walls to see what we can do so that we can have this dynamic type of impact. And I think it's exciting when you look at what BMW and Stress Family Creamery are doing. You're taking two sectors, agriculture and transportation, two of which are the, some of the largest contributors to greenhouse gases in the world. And what we want to do is say, hey, here's a model where you can take two of these industries and prove out a negative emission or carbon neutral solution on a broad scale. And um, I think that's really impactful. I think it's really exciting, but it all starts with alignment and shared goals and finding those spaces where you're intersecting. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to speak with me today on GreenBiz 350. It was great to have you. Thanks, Jesse. It's been a pleasure. Yep. Thank you, Jesse. Hello, we're back with more highlights from the GreenBiz 30 Under 30 list. This year, we featured our sixth cohort of rising young stars from startups, from the corporate world, and from the public sector. I encourage you to read about all of them at greenbiz.com. But now we hear from three, including Taylor Price, manager of global sustainability of Aptar Group. She talks about why working with the private sector intrigues her so much, as opposed to the public sector. Yang Shengjing, otherwise known as Yubi Kui, she is the partnership development executive of Green Monday, and she talks about the corporate sustainability movement in China, as well as how her experience at Interface is shaping her current role. And Harold Rickenbacker, he is the manager of clean air and innovation for Environmental Defense Fund, and he talks about the advantages and challenges of being a millennial in sustainability. Hi, I'm Taylor Price. I'm the global manager for sustainability at Aptar. The government moves pretty slow um, on different issues, and you know, you could work your whole career 10, 15, 20 years on one piece of legislation or one policy, one aspect. And I think something that's actually really exciting to me about business is that you can do multiple things all the time um, and kind of keep that going. But also, you know, things move so much faster. You can say, hey, we want to set a science-based target. And within two years, you've got one. Um, And, you know, then you can work after that to kind of meet those goals. But I think, you know, the pace has been you know, something that I enjoy a lot more, I think, than I would have on the nonprofit or policy side. So hello, uh, my name is Yubi, and I'm currently the Partnership Development Executive at Green Monday in China. Um, not everyone, you know, really buys into that idea, or especially the, you know, uh, the newer employees, they don't really understand the whole culture or the legacy behind the brand. So it's like a lot of um, engagement work that would need to be done. So I did a lot of like sales training, um, internal engagement. Of course, externally, we also, you know, try to engage our customers and the public um, or the industry about sustainability in the building industry. Um, so it was a lot to learn. And especially internally, because I had to, you know, gain touch with all kinds of different departments, uh, you know, who have 
completely different agendas. You know, the uh, the factory, the operational team, the the sales team, the marketing team. So like being able to rethink in other people's shoes and to help them achieve their goals um, while doing that sustainably, I guess, um, have been um, really helpful for me to do my job here at Green Monday because not everyone <laughs> buys into the idea of like, you know, eating less meat, especially in China, because, you know, people just like, we are just starting to eat meat or like, you know, um, eliminating um, starving here in China. And now you're asking me to eat less meat just because for the environment or something. So it's, it's a lot of consumer psychology and then um, understanding their perspectives and then trying to convince them about, you know, the benefits, I guess, like the positive sides of um, plant-based diets. My name is Harold Rickenbacker and I'm a Clean Air Innovation Manager at the Environmental Defense Fund. In a lot of these organizations, <laughs> any organization, there's generally these kind of traditional vision and principles that, that have been cemented, you know, years and years and years and almost decades ago that really drive the organization. When you bring in diverse talent, whether that's ethnic diversity or different age groups or you know, ethnic origin, you bring a new perspective to the actual workplace. Um, I think being a millennial, uh, part of the younger generation, uh, working at a larger nonprofit, I've been able to bring really like fresh ideas, um, whether that's from my you know, experience being in academia and bringing that to the nonprofit sector, or just even literally access to social media and how that's changing every day. So every, you know, public facing communications, ways to target our youth and, and, and other, you know, demographics across the U.S. It is really something that's changing every day. And in some cases, there's often a digital divide, you know, when working at different corporations where young folks bring fresh new ideas and innovative approaches to, you know, strategies or, or challenges that have plagued, you know, decades or, or plagued in different regions or different corporations for decades. So I think that's one strength. Um, I think one weakness uh, is, you know, overall, naturally, I've always been usually the youngest person in the room um, in a lot of the spaces that I'm in. If that's presenting at a specific conference or in different engagement meetings across various organizations or sitting on different boards, uh, I'm often usually the youngest person in, in the room. And I don't, I wouldn't say that it makes it harder, but oftentimes there may be, you know, let's be honest, a, a stereotype or, or for folks or a bias toward folks that are younger. You know, we hear about ageism in the workplace, um, not saying that you have to prove yourself, but there are instances where you may have that imposter syndrome uh, that you have to overcome in those settings. So I, all I'd like to say is it, it allowed me to stretch myself and always kind of prepare and ultimately enabled me to grow and, and really be an expert, a leading expert in, in this space. So although it may be a challenge, I think as we uphold that challenge or overcome that challenge, there's more than a ceiling or room for, for growth and continued opportunity to excel at any, any job.
And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find out more about the organization, stories, and events we mentioned this week. While you're over there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish seven of them, one every day of the week or one or more every day of the week. And you can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to learn more about them. As always, we welcome your comments, your questions, your tips. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by PwC. ESG Pulse provides rapid insights on areas for improvement in the reporting process so you can tell your story with confidence. Visit www.pwc.com slash US slash ESG Pulse to assess one of four free metrics at no cost.